WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a North Carolina case that could change the way elections are conducted forever. The case is Moore versus Harper. It all comes from the battle over gerrymandering here in the Tar Heel State. Republican state lawmakers argue they should have the final say in district lines and not the courts. They're citing a clause of the U.S. Constitution that says it's up to state legislatures to determine things like place and manner and time of congressional elections. It is a complicated case with implications for us here in North Carolina and across the country. In a few minutes, you'll hear from a conservative group arguing this is the path forward. But first. Joining us now, Tom Wolf with the Brennan Center for Justice, uh, leading nonprofit law and public policy institute. He's the deputy director in the Democracy Department. Tom, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, so help break us break this down for us. The critics argue that this case could could change democracy as we know it. Is that hyperbole, or is there some some real truth to that? There's some real truth to that. So at the core of this case is an attempt by a group of legislators in North Carolina who have egregiously gerrymandered the state's congressional map to push the Supreme Court to embrace something called the independent state legislature theory. It sounds technical. The main thing people need to know is this. This theory is about destroying our system of checks and balances. For over 200 years, state legislators have shared power for making the rules for federal elections with any number of people, including state courts, governors, election officials, and even the people themselves through direct democracy, you know, ballot initiatives, referenda, all of these actors together working within the bounds of their state constitutions decided how elections were run. The gerrymanders, they had their map struck down. They don't like that. They want the court now to say, look, no one except the legislators get to decide how these elections are run. I mean, that's a big blow both to voters in North Carolina and to our longer running system of checks and balances. That's kind of like, you know, American Values 101. So what conservatives cite is the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution as the reason that they believe they should have absolute authority over these maps. The election clause says the, the times, places and manner of, of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature. So how, how are you interpreting that clause? The legislature in that clause means the legislature as it normally operates, the same way that if you continue a little further in the elections clause, they also give power to Congress and they say, you know, Congress can make or alter rules for elections. Now, when people say Congress, they're not assuming Congress unchecked, for instance, by the Supreme Court. In the same way, we're not thinking about state legislatures unchecked by state courts or state constitutions. If the court really bought into this, Many of its recent decisions dismantling the Voting Rights Act would be invalid because the court shouldn't have anything to say about acts of Congress. Now, the other important thing to note is that um, the proponents of the ISLT uh, in this case, you know, tend to lean conservative, but the opposition to ISLT is bipartisan. This isn't really like a liberal versus conservative thing, particularly in the front of the court briefing that came into the Supreme Court about a month ago legions of prominent conservative figures stood up to reject this. So there's a chorus of voices on both sides of the aisle saying that this idea is, is bad and wrong. So then why, why then did the Supreme Court take up this case? The Supreme Court only needs four votes to take a case, but it needs five votes to make law, which means that you know 
at most what we can say is there are at least four justices who are curious and in looking into the issue. Um, you know, we've seen the court in the past be very interested in advancing anti-democracy perspectives, like when they rejected the ability of um, the federal constitution to check partisan gerrymandering just a few years ago, whereas it's been rolling back the Voting Rights Act. I think critically though, any speculation that a few justices on the court may have about the theory has come in a very different environment from the one that we're in now. So a lot of this was coming up in what's called the court shadow docket, basically like it's emergency appeals process where there's not a lot of briefing, there's not a lot of context for what's going on. They've basically been operating in a vacuum. The game's changed. Um, now they've got thousands of pages of material in front of them explaining everything about the ins and outs of this theory, why it's dangerous, why it's wrong, why it contradicts Supreme Court precedent. So at the end of the day, any Supreme Court justice that even thinks they might want to pick up a pen to write a majority opinion in support of the ISLT is really going to struggle to put together um, you know, a coherent and defensible position. That's going to be even harder for them to do in light of all the public blowback that they've been receiving over the last nine months or so for their rulings in cases about abortion rights and gun control. And how sympathetic do you feel like the, the conservatives on the court are going to be to this case? I think once they see the full dimensions of what's being offered to them, they're not going to like it. Um, you know, the Supreme Court in many ways has been able to kind of advance things as if they are isolated from the rest of um, American society, government and politics. But in a case like this, it threatens to basically bring key questions about how our elections are run or how our governments function that have normally been decided at the state level by the people, their representatives and their courts. This would take all of those cases, many of which are like very technical, they need to be resolved very quickly, and throw them all into the federal court, and really put them in front of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is basically now saying, um, if they take on this theory, that they're going to plunge themselves right in the middle of the most delicate and most political, uh, partisanly charged disputes in the country today. I can't imagine that they have an appetite for that, particularly because for the last 40 to 50 years, the court's been um, arguing over whether they should be involved in elections like this at all in the first place, and they've been trying to inch away from them. You, you mentioned the ISLT, the Independent State Legisla Legislature Theory. Uh, how is this a fringe theory, or or is this become mainstream? It's still a fringe theory. Uh, it emerged in the Bush v. Gore case um, in a concurring opinion actually so it wasn't even um law and that case famously the court said you shouldn't rely on this case to decide any questions um it re-emerged in the course of the 2020 elections during efforts by the trump campaign to keep um former president trump in power but really what kind of gave this theory momentum was as you noted earlier basically three or four justices on the court suggesting they might be interested in the theory there's really no support for it. It runs contrary to, at this point, over a century's worth of Supreme Court precedent. Uh, you know, some 100 years old, some just four or five years old in a variety of different areas. It has no historical grounding. In fact, all of the historians who have weighed in on this have said that this is a crackpot theory that no one in the 18th century could have possibly been thinking about. So if you're an originalist, as many members of the court claim to be, there's nothing there. You know, the text doesn't get you anywhere because there's no independent Congress, just like there's no independent state legislature. Um, so, you know, 
the only thing that's making it appear like it might be mainstream is it's now been plunged into a Supreme Court dispute, which has a tendency, I think, to sort of distort what's actually going on here, which I think is why it's really important. If you take the bird's eye view at all of the papers that have been filed in the case, more than two thirds of the people to chime in here have told the court to reject this theory. And it's not just liberals, it's conservatives too. It's not just politicians, it's also election officials, historians, civil rights groups, good government groups. From you know all ends of the conversation, these people who sometimes are arguing pretty intensely with each other have all unified to say the court has to reject this theory. Game this out for me. The, the Supreme Court comes back next summer and say, says, you know what, we, we are sympathetic to this. We think the Republicans in North Carolina have a case here. Um, and we side with them. What do you see as the implications going forward? Catastrophic. There are attempts now, I think, to suggest, oh, you know, there might be ways to compromise on this. But here's the thing. This theory has never been the law, and it shouldn't be the law. And the reason is because it just fundamentally misunderstands the way American governments worked for centuries, and it's threatening to upend all of it. So among the things that could happen. We could see um, hundreds of state constitutional provisions that guarantee various aspects of the right to vote, like the secret ballot, disappear overnight. We could see hundreds, I'm talking about upwards of 650 state statutes just disappear. Thousands and thousands of rules created by election officials to run elections, gone. Just don't mean anything anymore. You'd end up with a system where there'd be different rules for state and federal elections that are happening on the same day in the same place, like theoretically on the same ballot. Um, but more importantly, it would be replacing the checked and balanced system that we have with a new system of legislative supremacy that's just not American. It's not the way we do things here. It's not the way we ever have. At the end of the day, it means that voters don't have a say. Their state constitutions, which are supposed to be the expression of their values that are superior to everything in the state government, goes away. State courts, defenders of our rights, go away. Governors, no veto power. People can't even use ballot initiatives or referendum to change the law themselves. What does that mean? It means that the people in the state house are now like our supreme governors. That, uh, that's absurd uh, and extremely dangerous. All right, Tom Wolf with the Brennan Center. Tom, thanks for going on. We appreciate it. Much appreciated. Thank you. All right. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case all surrounding the issue of gerrymandering right here in North Carolina. Minutes ago, you heard about the complexity of the case, but now we're taking a look at the argument getting made by Republican lawmakers. Joining us now, Jay Christian Adams. He's the president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. His organization filed a brief in support of Moore in this case. Uh, Christian, thanks for coming on. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, so first up, critics say if the Supreme Court rules in favor of North Carolina Republicans, the result they say would be, using their words, catastrophic or extremely dangerous for democracy. Let's say you don't buy into that doomsday scenario, but at a minimum, you can look at this and say, Gosh, it does feel like a, a big change to how we handle election laws. It, it, is it such a drastic change necessary? Well, it actually doesn't change much because the Constitution already says in its plain language that the legislatures are responsible for uh, setting the rules for the election lines for, uh, for, for, for Congress. And so it's not a real radical interpretation to say that the people 
who should set the lines are those elected officials closest to the people. Remember, your state legislators are a lot closer to you than a state Supreme Court. You can call up your state legislator, express your opinion, they'll call you back. They're not like these distant elect uh, judges who you can't reach, who are not part of the political process. So it's not that radical to have power closest to the people, and that's exactly what they're advocating in this case. You, I'm glad you bring that up because you make the case about the specifically the elections clause of the Constitution. It says state legislatures should decide the time and manner of elections. Well, th that same clause, though, references Congress in a similar way. So does that mean that Congress is the last say and that, yeah. that, a, that a president and then a Supreme Court um, can't offer a check and balance to Congress using your same sort of rationale? Not a state Supreme Court. The Constitution is very clear. This is not some crazy idea. You know, there's a lot of crazy ideas about the Constitution, but this one is in the plain language. And it says that the state legislatures get to decide these issues about drawing the lines for uh, congressional districts. And you're right. Congress has a role if they decide to use it, but they haven't in this case. Congress could ultimately set the rules, but they haven't. And so it's up to the state legislatures. It doesn't say state Supreme Court. It says state legislatures have this authority straight out of the U.S. Constitution. Um, GOP redistricting here in North Carolina has been litigated and relitigated countless times in the past decade. Uh, they have typically heavily favored Republicans. The outcome then goes to, say, a congressional delegation that's somewhere around 10-3 in the Republican favor. Now, right now, for, for likely just one year, you have court-approved lines, as you know, and the delegation is split 50-50 right now. Given the fact of voter registrations are as they are, and there are fewer registered Republicans than there are Democrats or unaffiliated voters actually outrank both of them, um, is the will of the people not being reflected in the current lines or lines that come up with a similar sort of outcome of what is a really, and the numbers bear this out by voter registration, a 50-50 a state? The will of the people is reflected on election day, not how people register to vote. There's plenty of Democrats who vote Republican, and there's some Republicans who vote Democrats. As far as those lines being drawn by uh, courts, to make a 50-50 split, that's out of touch with what's going on in North Carolina. Democrats tend to live in high-density, close proximity, and they live in, in Mecklenburg County. They live in, in Wake County. They live in Brevard and Asheville. They don't live across the state in broad numbers. And so to have an imbalance, as you might call it, is reflective of the geographic decisions of Democrats to live in tight, cl close proximity, huddled together. And, and that's why they're not getting as many seats in Congress. The, the fact is that the will of the but people wait, is let, let me just stop you right there. Let me, th th are you making the case that ge geography and not the actual voters should decide that then? No, it's a, it's a mix. Look, you have to draw a, a legislative district as a geographic map. Sure. So geography is obviously going to play a part. And you can only have the same number of people in each congressional district. So if Democrats all choose to live on top of each other, it's going to make it harder to draw lines that, that somehow disperses that clustered population. But more importantly, the will of the people is reflected when the state legislature is elected on Election Day. And the Democrats have lost elections badly in North Carolina for a very long time. And if you want to draw the lines, go win the election. That's the answer. Persuade the people that your vision is better. But in North Carolina, they've been choosing Republicans. The people have been choosing Republicans to draw these lines.
Um, as you know, here in North Carolina, the governor does not have a say in redistricting. Um, if, if your side has their way, the, the courts will not have a say either way. Um, and this will basically be all up to a legislature. There's not going to be a checks and balance in place. Um, unfettered power over the election. This could backfire. In fact, one Harvard professor crunched the numbers and said North Carolina Republicans could benefit, but across the country, Democrats would probably have more gain to gain if state lawmakers had a final say in any election law. Um, is this really a good thing to give a, a state legislature, whether it's here or whether it's in North Dakota, complete total unfettered say about election law? Well, first of all, they won't have unfettered say. There's still federal civil rights laws that are implicated that federal courts can decide. But more importantly, yeah, it's a good thing to give people the, the people the power, the people, not bureaucrats, not independent commissions that are un, unaccountable to the people. The state legislature is the closest body in government to the people. It, it, there have been Democrat state legislatures in North Carolina in the not so distant past. And so the people should have the say on how these lines are drawn and having the legislature as representatives of the people is the best way to do it. Uh, let's say you guys pull out a victory in front of the Supreme Court when the decision comes out next summer. Uh, what do you see happening immediately? Well, not much, because in most places, the legislatures already draw the lines. North Carolina has a highly activist Supreme Court that has interfered and meddled with the will of the people. And so in most other states, it's not going to make a big difference because they don't have activist courts like the court in North Carolina. So it's really not going to make a difference in, in, a, in a, a lot of other states. But North Carolina will be the top because it has one of the most meddlesome courts in the country although they will now have a, a much stronger conservative slant going into uh, the next several years. So uh, might not work out that way, might not work uh, against your favor necessarily. All right, Christian, listen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. We do appreciate you hoping, um, uh, helping explain what is a complicated uh, theory and making it a little bit more digestible and understandable for our viewers. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, take care. More Flashpoint. We're talking about affordable housing right after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Charlotte City Council working to make the city a little more affordable for lower income residents. This week, council approved more than $20 million to cover additional costs for already approved affordable housing projects. This as construction starts on a new affordable housing unit and complex for seniors in, in West Charlotte. WCNC Charlotte's Lexi Wilson has the details. Here off West Boulevard, they've already started construction. As you can see, they've already leveled the ground for the new apartments. This is development that hasn't been seen in this area, and it's something the community has been fighting for. Charlotte isn't exactly cheap these days. The demand for affordable housing almost impossible to keep up with. We know that we are far behind in terms of what we need for affordable housing versus what we are actually able to put on the ground. Private and public sectors breaking ground Tuesday afternoon for new development here on West Boulevard. The 120 unit apartment complex will be affordable housing for seniors who have lived along the West Boulevard corridor for years. A lot of seniors that have lived here all their lives and don't want to have to be relocated. Because this is what we've been fighting for for a long time. This as Charlotte City Council approved over $20 million to cover additional costs for affordable housing projects that have already been approved. The rise in cost of construction is an absolute concern. City leaders say there's a need to reimagine the way they deliver affordability, but some say throwing more money at the problem isn't the right solution. And I think it's looking more holistically at upward mobility where affordable housing 
is one tool alongside transportation, food, clothing, childcare, uh, workforce development tools that enable them to get to the upward mobility that they need. And I'm told the rent will be based off of income. Construction will be completed spring 2024. Reporting in West Charlotte for WCNC Charlotte, I'm Lexi Wilson. More Flashpoint after this. Folks, before we leave you, come interact with us on social media. If there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. We'll see you back here next weekend.